Well, good morning, church. If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, sorry. You expected me to say John chapter 3, verse 16 maybe, but we're going to take just one little excursus here this morning. From the time that we're all little, we're encouraged in various ways, culturally, politically, to have heroes. C.S. Lewis, I think, rightly said, Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. Heroes are good things when they're held rightly. Now, some heroes fail us. I was raised in a home where Saturday afternoons with my grandfather were spent uh, in World War II movies. I can quote Midway and Kelly's Heroes and Torah, Torah, Torah verbatim. And the greatest hero of all of that genre of cinema is, of course, George Patton as he stands before the American flag and he rouses the troops. And he was a heroic figure for me as I was growing up. I, I learned after marrying my precious wife that that speech that he gives in front of that flag is a little bit profane. Uh, when, when, when Robbie was very little, uh, she came home after a class one day, and there's Robbie and I watching Patton giving the speech. And the bad thing is, I don't even think we were watching the whole movie. We were just watching that segment. Sarah was displeased. Uh, and I even tried to make the argument that, look, if you read the real speech, what General Patton actually said was way worse than what Hollywood, Hollywood allowed in the 70s. But I can promise you my hero failed me at that moment. My wife didn't buy the argument. It was a bad argument. But friends, every book that we read that is worth recommending to someone else always has, has a, a, a hero, that protagonist who solves the issues that are there in the, the storyline. A, a hero is a person admired for achievement and noble qualities. The central figure of an event, a period, or a particular movement. One who shows great courage. And again, we have these heroes in war, in politics, in education, in business, and that's not in and of itself wrong. In fact, one of my great fears in the church today, and particularly for the next generation, is that we have stopped giving young people, young men in particular, the right heroes. And part of it, I think, and we're going to get to this, but part of it, I'm just going to go here as we begin, is because we misunderstand what heroes are. They're not idols. Uh, they're, they're individuals we can look up to, but, but we, we have a culture right now that if one of our heroes has a particular issue in their life, a sin or something that is not socially acceptable, what we do is we, we tear down those statues. Because if they're not perfect well, then we shouldn't pay any attention at all. And you know, the sad reality that that communicates is that, again, we've misunderstood what heroes are. Because heroes are meant to encourage us in this lifetime into the next. We understand as Christians that the only perfect people are those who are in glory. But our culture doesn't have room for imperfect heroes anymore because all they can see is this life. So we need to have heroes. Again, we live in a day where I think churches are thrusting upon young people images of, 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 of Christians who are cool. And cool matters more than heroic. Cool, friends, in my opinion, in the grand scheme of the, the history of the church is really inconsequential and quite transient. Friends, we all orient our lives either to what the world says is heroic or what God sees as heroic. And I promise you that cool isn't God's command. Uh, young people are so enthralled with the pastor that, and, and I'm not just saying this because I can't fit into them, uh, but the pastors that are in skinny jeans with their latte, and if you've been here long enough, you hear me rail against them all the time. It's just because there's so much foolishness 
that is there, and I typify that in, in a style. It's not the style. It's trying to amuse people more than it is seeking to live passionately for the glory of God. Friends, I would contend with you this morning, what is more probable for our children than meeting cruel enemies is that they will face an unbelieving world, a world that does not know Jesus. So at least then, let us lay before them brave men and women of the faith who have lived with heroic courage. And with that in mind, if you would rise to your feet today as we read, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, and though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And here's our verse this morning, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you, the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence this morning thankful for this encouragement, thankful for what it means. I pray, Father, that You would give me words to speak in boldness here. I pray that I would speak not one word more, not one word less. And I pray, Father, that You would imprint unto all of our hearts the intention that You have from these words. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. What the Apostle Paul is here pointing to is a life full of the good profession of the truth, so a truth-centered life is what Paul is aiming at, and a perseverance of, of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and, and what we have in, in, in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you, if you look at verse 9, is juxtaposed to this encouragement, do not, le- do not be led astray by diverse and strange teaching. Uh, What Paul is commending here is the pursuit of a life that is ultimately lived in the truth, faithful to Christ. That is what he is encouraging us uh, onward into this morning. In any pursuit of living, of life, you will have, and especially theologically, you'll have two main categories, the formal and the material principle. The formal principle tells you where you get your authority, and the material principle lays down the central teaching of the particular formal principle. So in what I would consider our view, definitely my view, the formal principle is sola scriptura. That is that the Bible is the sole standard of faith and practice. Now, the material principle that flows from that is sola fide, which is that sinful man is justified by faith alone. And everything that we believe about the living God really flows from those reality. Well, here in verse 7, continuing on from that formal principle of sola scriptura and the material principle of sola fide, in verse 7 we have in, in view this life of, of living for the truth in perseverance of the faith. And the author here gives us in this one verse both the formal cause and the instrumental cause of completing that work, that that life of faith and in the truth. The formal cause is the Word of God. Remember those who spoke to you the Word of God. The, The formal cause of our fidelity to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the year 2023 is not how cool we can be to the culture around us. It is that we as a church individually and collectively are committed to the Word of God. And from that, we see two instrumental causes. That is, 
The preaching of the Word. The heralding. And, and the preaching of the Word of God has fallen on hard times. I remember the first year that I was in this church. And I encouraged our pastor at the time. We were doing a, a play at Christmas time. And I was irate behind the scenes. Because the play did not clearly proclaim a gospel that we are deserving of hell and only ransomed by the grace of God. And I said, it's fine for you to do the play, but at the end of the day, you need to get up and proclaim the gospel to the people that are going to be in the seats for this play. And the obnoxious response that, that came on the heels of that. That poor guy was in his office, and I was a great encourager. Go do it. I didn't have to do the work at that point. Um, but he was lambasted for that. And I remember one individual in particular calling me behind his back and saying, do you really think that that's necessary? That, that he gets up there and preaches? People are not looking for that. Well, I think that's true. People aren't looking for the preaching of the Word of God. But our directives do not come from people, from the culture, and the appetites of man. They come from the living God. So we see the instrumental cause is the preaching of the Word of God and the secondary instrumental cause is those who do the preaching, those who have spoken the Word of God. We are reminded in light of this of Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. When we consider the life of truth lived in persevering faith, there are then from this verse three objects for us to consider. The objects are the leaders, those who are proclaiming, the faith, their belief in what they proclaim, and finally, the object of their way of life to have been considered. Their leaders, their faith, and the issuing way of life from it. There are then following from that three distinct duties that the, uh, the, the Apostle here lays out for each one of us who hear these words. And those three duties are to remember our leaders, to imitate their faith, and to consider the outcome or the end, the outworking of their lives, of their living now the question then has to be, who are the leaders that are being spoken of here? Well, let me emphatically say, it's not the current leaders who are leading the church at the time. It's not the current pastors who are still shepherding. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is not about those who are presently at the time of the writing of this particular letter leading the church. Because if you look in verse 17... That group of people is dealt with separately. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We owe the, the present leaders that are shepherding and stewarding the Word of God our obedience and submission. Here he also speaks of those in the past tense who spoke the Word of God. And finally, these are individuals who have already received the outcome of, the, uh, of the, their way of life, of their particular living out of their faith. And we'll get to that in a minute. So, so ultimately here, we, we have to see these people as those who have already passed on to glory. They, they are heroes of the faith. We see in Acts chapter 14 that there are very gifts among those who lead. In chapter 14, verse 12 in particular, Paul is called Hermes, and it's quoted because 
he was the chief speaker. Uh, The word chief there, attributed to Paul, chief speaker, is the same word that is used here for leader. Uh, This speaks of those then who who have the primary task of speaking the Word of God to the people. It it speaks of those who go before the church, who guide it and lead it. And, and, And so... Whatever the gifting, whether an apostle or an evangelist or a pastor, what is being spoken of here is that we are to remember those people who spoke the Word of God over the church and who did it with fidelity and fervor. Now, the second question we have to come to is what what does it mean to remember? And you might think, well, that's an easy word. I get it. Check. Let's move on. It's really not in the scope of church history an easy word to grasp apparently. Because there are many errors. But there are two ways to do this faithfully. One is naturally. Naturally, that is, we retain them in our memory. We keep them before our minds. As we're talking about those who have faithfully proclaimed the Gospel to you, I know that many of you are thinking about that dear saint who led you to Christ, that faithful pastor who first mentioned the Gospel to you, that Sunday school teacher who prayed over you in a particular time of difficulty and struggle, that college professor who modeled the way of the Gospel. Some of you have noticed that next door uh, we have put some family portraits down the hallway. And I, I noticed this morning as you all gathered in the hallway, there was one portrait in particular that was given the most attention. And that was the, that, that, that's the picture of Brother Neil Brillhart, who passed away just a day after I became pastor of this church. And you gathered there for a good reason. Because he was a faithful man who spoke the Word of God to you. And so God has inscribed him in some way that you naturally remember his ministry, his work, his labor before you. They, they spoke the Word of God over you. So naturally, again, you hold them in your mind. It's proof you're holding them naturally in your mind that their labor was not in vain. But here is the, the crux of the issue. If the only thing that you do is remember in a natural sense the, the data about who they were, if one day I die, which I will, and all that is remembered is round glasses and a bow tie, And my ministry has been in vain. Those are natural details and a natural memory, but it doesn't bear the freight of what the encouragement is here. The encouragement is a moral memory. We are here to remember what they said and what they did. What they taught and how they lived. How they were used as an instrumental cause in our growth. You remember those individuals who have grown you. That over time you remember how they prayed with you, how they exhorted you, how they sought to entreat you and correct you. They brought things before you. And and you know, what I find interesting about growth in Christ is this. And there are exceptions to this. But I don't in my Christian growth remember maybe ten sermons. Maybe. I've listened to gobs of sermons. And those sermons have formed me over time. And, and that's the way that the, the heralding of the Word of God works. It's contrary to a lot of Baptist life, three alliterated words will not bring the salvation of souls. Will not bear out the salvation of souls. It's, it's not about our cognitive memory. It's about the Spirit of God convicting and molding through His Word being proclaimed. And that is what is being here encouraged. Remember that that was their, their labor. And not only were they concerned for your being molded into the image of Christ, but their first concern was that they themselves were molded into the image of Christ. There is a massive way that other movements have misunderstood what it means to remember. I believe that to remember is both natural in our minds and moral in our living in the way that we grow in holiness and an understanding of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what, that is what Paul, because again, uh, the apostle, I don't want to get into the authorship argument, the apostle here is encouraging us in a life of perseverance of the faith and truth. And so it is in remembering that truth and that life of faith that we faithfully bear out 
this command. But others have understood to remember the saints that have spoken the Word of God in this way. Well, we will create festivals to them. We'll have a day of remembrance for them. We'll have a feast day. You know, I can't believe it is the one thing that I don't understand didn't carry over into Baptist life is that we don't ascribe to all of the feast days. And it's not necessarily because of the theological implications. It's because we're people who love the feast part of that. There are religions in this town this morning that will encourage people to remember saints of old by lighting candles before them. There's a peculiar movement that embalms the bodies of the saints so that onlookers can gawk at them over time. I was asked one time, George Whitfield is buried beneath the pulpit at New South in Newburyport, Connecticut, uh, alongside of two other uh, uh, pastors. And here's a fun historical heroic note for you. When our forefathers went out into battle, they would sneak into the sanctuary and they would pry the lid on Warfield, uh, excuse me, Whitfield's casket and they would take a cutting off of his preaching, his Geneva robe, and they would tie it to their uniform as a measure of good luck as they, headed, as they went out into battle. As I was sharing some of this with my wife one time, she said, so do you want to be buried underneath the church? And I said, Lord, no. I've been down there before. And I don't want people cutting my clothes off either. That's weird. I don't want people grave soaking either. That's bizarre. That's a new one to me that I I learned about. There there is this zealous outward uh, worship. And even in in some circles, and I'm not going to get into the whole argument about iconography here, but there is an encouragement that we use icons, images of saints in the worship of God. And friends, I I would just encourage you that that is absolute nonsense. We should never use the image of another individual in the worship of Almighty God. Now, I will say this, I intend with every fiber of my being not to live under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's my contention that in some ways the Protestant Church has done just that. Because when the Catholic Church does something, it's not our job to look at the Catholic Church and go, well, we're going to do the exact opposite. Because thereby doing what you end up doing is you live under their authority. You just live under their authority as a petulant, rebellious teenager instead of as a man or woman of faith. And and I will contend with you, there are things that are reformed and there are arguments in church history that I just don't think hold water in what what happened was um, the the Protestant reformers come into the church and y'all, there is artwork and, I mean, just gaudy stuff everywhere. And, and the Catholic Church would argue, and I think to this day, though I didn't check this out, that, that the artwork was for the poor people who could not read so they could understand and they could read there. And it's one of the reasons why Protestant churches have always been about education. Because we want them to read the Word of God. We want them to understand God from His Word, not from images, right? And I I agree with all of that. But there was an overreaction at times. That there were zealots that went into the churches and uh, started breaking stained glass. Because all of this is idolatry. And there's letters where Luther would write to them and tell them, knock that off. I'm thankful he did. Um, There's also these arguments from the art world today um, that, that, that Protestant theology has ruined the art world, but really what has happened, what was happening at the time, you've you got to be careful about how you read history. What was happening at the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church at one point owned the, the basilicas and the, the places of worship, but as the Reformation took hold and these churches became Protestant, well, the Protestant movement wasn't a, a bankrolled group of people. And so what ended up happening was these, um, these churches became a, a ward of the state. The, the city council owned the church. And, 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 and so the liquidation of art from the life of the church was not just Calvin and Zwingli and Luther getting together and saying, we think all art is bad. In fact, Calvin wrote exactly the opposite. 
um, what was really happening was city council was watch, walking into the basilica and they were going, whoa, we have figured out the taxation problem. We can sell all of this and we can go to war, we can build buildings, we can do our work our way. We'll rob the church in that direction. I'm not arguing that we should put up massive amounts of art in this sanctuary as an instrument of worship, but I do think that we have to be careful of our understanding of church history. In fact, Calvin himself would, would argue that it's good to have images in the home that encourage you to think in that way. Of course, Calvin's not the authority of the Word of God is. Um, I say all of this because I know that next door, some of you are going to walk down the hallway and you're going to think, is this okay that we have pictures of people? Well, I want you to note a few things of the the, the heroes that are down that hallway. They are not instruments of our worship. They are merely pictures of family members. And you'll notice that there are no halos that surround them. I I would have been really upset with Max had he drawn those pictures that way. Uh, because, because here's what we believe that is so inherently different from Catholicism. Our heroes are not superhuman. Our heroes are not individuals who will never rot and so we can go look at them in a tomb. Our, our heroes aren't people that when they walked out onto the stage there was a little glowing orb behind their head. Our heroes are ordinary people who an extraordinary God has used in wonderful ways to build His church for His glory, not theirs. And so can we enjoy good art? And my friends, that's good art. Yes, we can. We shouldn't worship in light of it, ever, in any way. But we should be convicted by the lives of those that those images represent and their words and their testimony before the living God that God Himself has given. You see, the end of remembering well is not to pray to or through a particular saint that we hold in high esteem. It's not to have feast to them. It's not to go look upon their carcass. It's not to view them as some second class of people. It is to simply imitate their faith and their holiness of living. And that is what we are called to do here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. To those who lead, we are called to live with such faith and holiness. Ultimately, those who lead the church, this gives us an encouragement to live in such a way that people are inspired. You know, one of the things that happens when you start talking about older saints is this, and and I don't begrudge this because I've had the experience. There is this sense of they accomplished so much more than I did. Or, or they did something wonderful for the, their... What, to just get to the rat killing of it. Looking back at the lives of the heroes of the faith brings conviction into our lives. Friends, isn't that what you want your leaders to do? Isn't that how you want them to live? With holiness and passion and fervor for God in such a way that as you are running to Christ, you are convicted and encouraged along in your, your walk with the Lord? I hope that's what you desire. I hope those are the kind of heroes that we set before the young people in our own generation. But what is most important here, I think, in what that means... What is holiness and a faithful life for a leader, a hero of the faith? What does that actually look like? The apostle gives us the character, I think singular, of faithful leadership here. It is singular, but elusive to so many. It is prioritized so low in modern churches. Others add to it. But this is the one guiding virtue of genuine leadership. And it really doesn't even have to be pretty. It doesn't have to have all of the panache and flair. It just must be faithful. And that one characteristic is that they are men and women who preach the Word. 
William Perkins said, The Word of God alone is to be preached in its perfection and inner consistency. Scripture is the uh, exclusive subject of preaching, the only field in which the preacher is to labor. Francis Grimke said, I believe that the most important part of public worship is the preaching of the Word, and that everything should be made subservient to it, that nothing should be allowed to enter that would lessen in any way, in any way the effect thereof. Herman Bovink, a great Dutch Reformed theologian, said, and I love this, Where God's Word is, there is God Himself. There God's Spirit is at work. There God establishes His covenant. There He plants His church. Preach the Word. Paul said it this way to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into silly myths. Do you see the dichotomy that is mirrored in Hebrews 13? Paul is... the, the, the author here is arguing, pay attention to those who have passed away, who have spoken the word to you. Don't wander into silly myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of the evangelism, fulfill your ministry. This is the call of God on every man who would lead the church. Preach the word. We are not here to make your life easy. We are not here to amuse you with the tone of our voice. We are not here to make sure that your marriage is perfect. We are not here to entertain all of your children. We are not here to make sure that your worldly comforts are secured. We are called not to make you happy, but to call you to holiness and by His Word and His Word alone. And that's why we read our called to worship this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. The Word of God is the sole object of the faith of the church, the only outward means of communicating the mind and the grace that God has for His people. The being, the life, the joy of the church stands on one thing this morning, and that is the Word of God. When we have questions of faith and obedience and worship and discipline, we have one place where we must flee, and that is to His Word and His Word alone. The apostles in Acts 6 Verse 4, rightly declare, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This is the ground, the cause of of respect that is due to these men that that the Apostle is talking about in verse 7 of chapter 13. The one cause for respect, the one ground to remember these leaders, and this one cause alone is that they diligently, carefully, consistently spoke the Word of God to to the beloved before them. And so in light of this reality, in light of the consistency of the proclamation of the Word of God, we are then further called to follow their faith. Consider their way of life. Imitate their faith. Preaching the Word of God is not a life of idle living. Some young men I hear, in fact, one of the men that's in the hallway next door, uh, Reverend, he's the only one with Reverend on the name. We noticed that. That was my mistake. Um, But Reverend Thomas Scott... And the story ends better than it begins. 
admits in his spiritual autobiography the reason he got into the ministry was because he was born and reared on a farm and he didn't want to have to work. And pastors don't have to labor. So I'll just go do that. And for the first years of his ministry, he didn't labor. He stuck himself in his office in the ivory tower and, 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 and just preached what the community wanted to hear. He was an eloquent speaker and all of those things. But he was not given to the Word. His autobiography, The Force of Truth, is among my favorite works from church history. It's beautiful to see the way that God takes a stubborn preacher and makes him whole. But here I find so often young men today drawing this stark line in the sand. Well, well, I will do the work of, of being in the Word and, and, and praying, but I won't do anything else for the body. Well, friends, I do think that the Word teaches us that men who, who are called to the office of elder are to primarily teach and lead, and that's the way they serve the church. But it's not exclusively. We remember Paul was a, a tent maker, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And why? Here Paul gives the answer. It was not because we did not have the right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. There should be heavy labor for those who proclaim the Word of God. Friends, this pulpit is the primary means of the proclamation of the Word of God, but it is not the exclusive means. There is a counseling chamber. There are hospital beds. There, there are, 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 are multi classrooms. There are multitudes of ways that we speak the Word of God into the lives of people. And we must be diligent in that labor. I respect no man who hides from labor behind the Word of God. My mother called me one time and she said, Jay, I have a charismatic friend whose husband, he runs a radio program and he, he, he's one of those uber-Christian types. And when his wife asks him to take out the trash, he says to her, I'm not inclined to do that. I'm inclined to be in the Word. What do you think about that? I said, well, it makes me tremble a little bit thinking of if I tried that move on dear little Sarah. I would wear the trash, not take it out. And so it should be among the saints of God. The men who stand in this place should labor with everything in them. And if you want one man to rouse you to this reality, it is the indefatigable Spurgeon who said these things, and I'm, they're detached quotes, but you need to hear them all. If by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of men worn out in the Master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of earth and so much more of heaven. He goes on to say, it is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot it is to be consumed. And further, he says, we can only produce life in others by wear and tear on our own being. This is a natural and spiritual law that fruit can only come to the seed by its spending and being spent into self-exhaustion. And finally, in every minister's life, there should be traces of stern labor. He's speaking to pastors here. He says, brethren, do something. Do something. Do something. While committees waste their time over resolution, do something. While societies and unions are making constitutions, let us win souls. Too often we discuss and discuss and discuss while Satan only laughs in his sleeves. Get to work. Act like men. My prayer is that God would raise up a generation that would fulfill that reality and be spent in the work of the ministry. Men are not to make 
pronouncements. Merely, the pastorate is not a place. These people that Paul is talking about, I'm going to quit doing that one day. I think it's Paul. I do. It may not be. And that's not the point. Uh, the, 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 the apostle here is, is talking about those who spoke the Word of God, that that vocation is not a vocation where we just pronounce what we believe, but rather we are to live out every syllable. You know, when I wrestle through the text, and this isn't about me, this is about those who have gone before us, but when I wrestle through the text, do you know who gets to deal with the difficulty of the text in the conviction first? Me. And sometimes it's like crawling through glass to realize, God, I am so unworthy of this task and so unworthy of this word. It befuddles me the task that is before me often. But we are called not to just be static telling you what the text means, but to live it out. Remember what James says in James chapter 2, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The man of faith is to be remembered both for his objective faith and his subjective faith. That is, there is an objectivity here and a subjectivity. When, when the apostle says that we are to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, that faith has two components. One is the objective part. What they taught, what they professed, what they believed, the doctrines that they lived their life upon. Guard your life and your teaching. Well, your life is that subjective part of the ministry. What issues from what you teach, you profess, and you believe. Uh, Their works in the community, their care for the orphan, their love for their wife, their suffering alongside the least of these in the community. Uh, And especially, the subjective part that we are to pay attention to is what they have suffered and lost for the sake of Christ. I can think of men in my own life. One is a man named Dr. Terry Wallace who was the most faithful, godly man to live out the principles of the faith before me. And Dr. Wallace and I have some theological disagreements. But we have the same Lord and He is so precious to me. I can remember when Robbie was having a birthday party. He was probably three years old. And Doc, who was teaching a full roster of classes, came uh, to Chuck E. Cheese's. You know that someone is called of God when they show up to Chuck E. Cheese's. That's gross pizza. And he and and Joyce, they were there for all of the births of our children. They prayed with us. They wept over us at times. Um, And I remember outside, I was going to get my keys out of the car, and I heard, after they had left the birthday party, I heard Doc say to Joyce, okay, we go to the hospital now, and then we're going to go visit this person, and then we can go home. Is that my understanding of our day? Their, Their whole weekend was consumed with the servants of the saints, and that is... That is what is before me in so much of my thinking. I think of men like W.H. Burns, whose picture is next door. Uh, He was a minister in the Church of Scotland, and the, the government was encroaching upon the church, so he went to a meeting seeking to defend the church from the encroachment of governmental constraint over the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And his movement didn't win the day. He was cast out of the church. And, and, and he, he came home. Think about this. This man, probably by horse and buggy, went to a pastor's meeting. His wife and family living in a home. And when he returned home, he stood knocking at the door and nobody would answer. And it didn't dawn on him what had happened. He left with the home and he came back homeless. And two dear deacons went and got that brother. He lost everything and they told him, we love you and we are your congregation. We're thankful you've stood for the truth and we will build you a house. But for now, you're going to have to come live with us. What they lose for the faith often Friends, we live in a day and age when these twits on TV hold up everything they have and they point to Jesus. I want to know what you've lost for the Lord. That will tell me more of the fiber of your conviction and your leadership. I think of men like, again, Thomas Scott, this arrogant Armenian man who thought that Calvinism was the death nail of the church and thought that preaching the simple Word of God was so stupid and petty and foolish. And here comes John Newton, this, this slave trader, and a profane man. How dare he assume the ministry? 
That man, John Newton, preached the Word and he loved his people, people and he labored among them. And what ended up happening in Thomas Scott's life was he was convicted. He actually went to hear George Newton preach one time and he was convinced. He got up and he was angry. How dare that man? He knew as important as I am that I was going to be there and he preached a text against me in front of all of those people. It a couple months later that he realized that man preaches expositionally. He just goes verse by verse by verse. John Newton wasn't dealing with me. God was dealing with me. What a joy it is to see. And the outcome of Thomas Scott's faith, this man who is a high-browed preacher who is humbled by the doctrines of grace, what that doesn't do to him, it didn't turn him into a guy who posted pictures of his bourbon and his cigar on Facebook and pontificated about Reformed theology. It turned him into a man who was willing to leave one of the most prestigious Pastor, it's in all of London to go work in a syphilis ward and be a chaplain. What have you lost for the Word and the proclamation and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, all of these heroes that I'm talking about today, we ultimately understand the end is not in them in and of themselves. We don't imitate their faith as to point to them as the end. But rather, we imitate them as much as they are imitating Christ, which is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Good heroes always point you home. So finally, what we have from this text is the motive of their way of life, of those who spoke the Word of God. Look at, at verse 7 with me again. Consider the outcome. Consider their way of life. The subjective part. Yes, we can see. We can envision what that life looks like. We can read the biographies. And there are biographies in the hallway next door. There's cards. You can check them out and read them. I promise you, you can read them because my 10-year-old reads them. We can understand that subjective, that the, the way that they live, but how do we understand what, what, what the Apostle is talking about here? The outcome of their life. What is that? What is the outcome of their way of life, of their living faithfully in the truth? Well, I think we need to understand that by standing back and taking into consideration what we should always take into consideration, and that is the context of this text. Look with me in your Bible. At the very end of chapter 10, we need to understand the full argument of where we find Hebrews 13, verse 7, and considering those who have spoken the Word of God to us. Uh, what, 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 what the Apostle has been making arguments about here is what would it look like, what would happen if we fell away from the faith, if we apostatized the faith, if we left the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he goes on to encourage these dear beloved uh, children of God, that, that they are not those kind who leave us because they're not part of us. Starting in verse 35, we read, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Again, that's part of the outcome. There is a great reward. What is it? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is, prom what is promised. What, what is that? For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Listen to this last verse. This is emphatic. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their their souls. We don't lose faith. And that goes on. What does that look like? Well, I, I hate that the chapter numbers are here because we should just read through. Now, faith, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. For by it, the people of old received their condemnation. They, they received the outcome in some sense. And then we know the great Hall of Faith chapter here in Hebrews that's well known that enumerates all that was done and garnered by faith. But flip to the end of chapter 11 with me. I hope you're staying with me. 
What would it look like to fall away from this life of truth? What would it look like to fall away from persevering in the the faith? Remember, we are not those. We we live on things that are unseen. And then in verses 39 and 40, we, we find these words. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, we need to come back to our verse just momentarily, and then we'll finish out in understanding the outcome of the faith, the life of faith, the the way of life that is spoken of here in chapter 13. And we need to understand something. The word here of outcome is the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape there, that phrase, the way of escape, is translated in Hebrews 13, verse 7, into the outcome. The way of escape and the outcome. And as we think about the faithful life of Christians and what they've lost and endured... We have to think in our own lives too of how often circumstances or trials or temptations have come and those trials, those circumstances, those difficulties have said to you in the dark of night, just give up. Stop following Jesus. This is foolish. You can have the entire world if you walk away from Jesus. Friends, that's been the the cunning encouragement from Satan throughout all of human history. Give up Jesus. And I'll give you all of the world. But friends, the faithful saints that that have gone before us have given us the image that they will give up all of this world for just a taste of Jesus. I think of men like... I have two studies, one here and one at, at, at home. At home, there hangs a picture just to the left of my desk of John Rogers, the first Marian martyr, who went to his death reciting joyfully Psalm 51. And his children helped heap the, 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 the wood onto the fire. Can you imagine that? And he said, instead of recanting what he was proclaiming, the truth, what he was doing was proclaiming the faith once for all delivered. He was speaking the Word of God. He's one that we should remember, in my opinion. And he says, that which I have preached, his final words, that which I have preached... I now seal in my blood. To natural man, that's insanity. That's foolishness. Why would you do that? There's a macabre feeling to that. Why would you allow your children to be there, John? Why why would you not just, okay, fine, I recant, and then run somewhere else and start preaching the truth there? Why would you stand so firmly as to even allow your life to be taken or... And you guys have heard this worn out, and I'll keep wearing it out because it's glorious. That narrative of Latimer and Ridley as they're tied there to the stake and burned alive for the sake of the gospel. And, and Latimer looks at Ridley, and I, this is comical in some sense. It's also weighty. Max, we don't have Latimer and Ridley or John Rogers either, by the way, and we're open to anyway. Like I, the first Several people have walked over in that hallway, and they've said, there's 39 pictures in here. And I'm like, I know, we worked so hard to trim it down and it breaks my heart because there's so many more that should be here. And friends, glory will be one day, ugh, we'll be home with them, right? We'll have met our heroes face, faith, face to face. But Latimer and Ridley, and Latimer turns to Ridley and says, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light, a, light such a candle by God's grace in England as I should trust never to be put out. And of course the story goes that Latimer died very instantaneously and Ridley suffered for hours. Be a man, Ridley. I'm out. That's what happened that day. But why? Why Why would they do that? Again, the world looks at men like this and women like this who died and they consider them fools. 
The world looks at the church and all that she has lost throughout the centuries and has pity. You poor, pitiful people. You've given so much money to that church. You've spent so much time laboring there. You've spent so much time listening to one person preach for decades. You've spent so much time in the Bible. What do you have in earthly sense to show for it? Friends, the commendation, that the outcome of the life of the saints who live the faith persevering in the truth is not found in this world. It's not found in this life. We're not looking for the mansion or the Ferrari or the perfect life of health. Jesse Duplan is one of the foolish knotheads on TV recently said that his daughter said, Daddy, I've never seen you sick. And she's 40 years old and he gloats. Yeah, well, we tried being sick and we just don't like it. We tried being poor too and we didn't like that. Like gloating over... How stupid. That is not the point of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is then the outcome of the walk of faith? Here, what are we called to consider? Look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking not to men, not to our heroes, but looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. What is the outcome? It is that Jesus Christ will be glorified. And beloved, I promise you, we will be satisfied in Him. We can lose everything in this life because we have found everything in Christ. The ordinary heroes of the faith point us not to themselves, but to the glory of the One who is seated this very moment, ruling and reigning for His own glory and for our redemption. And I close with this narrative. And I think it's what every man who has received their commendation would say. I want to just be very careful to get around as we move next door that you understand in no way is this a reflection that we should look to these men ultimately. Allow their lives to convict you. Allow them to inspire you. Understand their their faults and their frailties and their sins and where they miss the mark theologically. But be thankful to God that He uses imperfect, ordinary vessels to an extraordinary end. And, 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 and here is one of my favorite works of fiction. is a book called Cry Thy Beloved Country. I think it's out there on one of the library stalls. And, and there, uh, an older country preacher finds out that his son has fallen into debauchery and foolish living in a South African town. And so he leaves his small parish that's almost dwindled to nothing. And he goes to Johannesburg to, to find his son. And there are all of the church leaders of the larger churches in Johannesburg. And, and they watch this man labor to find his son. And in the process, he finds that his sister is wayward in prostitution and debauchery. And he labors lovingly to, to restore them to the faith, to bring them to a point of repentance. Exhausts himself in that effort to speak God's Word over them. And one of the, one of the bishops says to, his name is Miss Mungu, It's a fun book to read because there's a lot of African names in there and the Missouri dialect pairs wonderfully with those names. It's good to read after you've read it, uh, listen to after you've read it once because you get the names right. Missy Mungu is is sitting and just bereft and exhausted and, and a dear brother pastor comes along and says, my dear brother, I have never seen a man of more faith, a man who loves people so well. And Miss Imungu's response is the response of every hero of the faith worth their salt. He says, no, no, that is not true. I'm, I'm a weak and a sinful man. God has put His hand upon me. That is all. Friends, might we look into the history of the church and find the men 
that would say that very same thing to us. Not that they in and of themselves are great, but that they serve a great God, one that they would commend to us to serve faithfully in our own generation with all that we are, whatever we have to lose. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you so thankful that we stand on this side of church history with so many men and women who have lived the faith once for all delivered to the saints, not in their own power, but in the power of the glorious Gospel. The Gospel that says that You save sinners by Your own divine decree. That You bring people who were once dead in their trespasses and sins to repentance and faith. Father, if there's one here today who has never truly repented of their sin and believed upon Christ, they've merely played a religious, spiritual game, would You open their mind to the reality that they need to flee to Christ, to look to Him, to to place their faith in His finished work and that alone? Father, for those who you, You have sent before us, for Brother Bill Hart and John Rogers and Latimer and Ridley and... Elder Ward, and and men who spoke the Word of God faithfully, I pray for the next generation of young men that You would give them boldness, that You would give them clarity of thought, that You would give them diligence in their study, that You would give them courage to speak to a culture that is in the hands of Satan. And that, Father, we would see You at work amongst us. That we would see You redeeming people by Your grace alone and for Your glory alone. That the church would be called back to fidelity and faithfulness, not merely to entertainment. And might we imitate, might we consider the outcome of their faith, Jesus, and might we imitate their way of living. In Christ's name, amen. Please rise if you're able and let's sing together, all glory be to Christ. Yeah.